This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey there, welcome back to Great Quarter Guys, the show where the lines between freight and finance are none. A different face sitting next to me today, so we're going to actually focus a little bit more on economics than we typically do, uh, as I do with Seth Holm, where he is, the, he is the finance guy. But I've got our lead economist, Anthony Smith, here with me to do a deep dive on what are the best economic data that we should be looking at right now for freight and for the general economy. There are so many mixed signals coming out uh, from all over the place, a lot of good, but some bad as well. So we're going to dive into it all uh, I'm Andrew Cox, by the way, your host, of course, and our senior retail analyst here at FreightWaves. This is our 66th episode, and it's going to be fun. I'm going to also introduce a new segment. Uh, it's just going to be a simple chart of the day, whether it comes from Sonar or from outside of Sonar. This one happens to come from outside of Sonar, and it is uh, comes from the point-of-sale newsletter that I write on Mondays and Thursdays. This was in yesterday's uh, point-of-sale on Monday, if you could show it. So it's just showing the growth spurt that Amazon and its logistics operations have had this year, uh, or in 2020, rather. It was just absolutely remarkable. In the U.S. alone, they added over 300 facilities, nearly a million square foot of uh, of square foot of, of space and warehouses, either indoor and out or outdoor. They've done a great job of repurposing old parking lots, old stadiums, all kinds of things into sortation centers, into delivery centers. Uh, and we're going to get into a little bit more about what they're doing when we talk about Target here in a moment. But we've got a couple of you care or nas before Anthony and I dive into the economic data. But Anthony, I did want to welcome you. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me on. Big fan of this show. I watch it often, so glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you're here as well. Seth Holm has his feet up somewhere uh, above the sand in Hilton Head, so I wish him at least one afternoon of rainy weather uh, just <laughs> since, he's, since we're here working while he's not. But all the best to you, Seth. We'll, we'll talk more soon. But all right, Anthony, so I've got to a quick you care or not, not, not a full one. It's just I saw today that Vanessa Bryant and the Kobe Bryant estate have decided to not renew their contract with Nike. And everybody is now brewing, uh, thinking that there's a new Mamba brand coming soon. What do you think? That would be dope. Like when you're looking at a lot of these people that are sponsored and these, I don't know, these sponsorship deals, endorsements, things like that, it, a lot of it gets caught up in not really hitting the family. And when you see accidents like this happen, I would want the state to benefit from it. And Kobe Bryant is so huge that he can definitely stand alone. He has this incredible legacy. So I'm for it. I love it. For sure. He's also huge in Asia. Uh, I think they're going to do well there if they potentially launch this brand. I'm excited to see it. I mean, I do think there's kind of this duopoly going on right now between Nike and Adidas. They just kind of own the market. Uh, and I would like to see some more smaller brands come in and really make a big play. I know I got to give a shout out to Crystal. She loves Noble. She's always wearing Noble. They just uh, raised a huge uh, round of funding at a $500 million valuation or something. So uh, incredible to that brand. All right. Let's get into you care or not. Nah. The first one is a story that just broke this morning, I believe. Um, can't remember who covered it on Freight Waves, but it is about a bidding war possibly going on on the rails. So this is just a few weeks after uh, Canadian Pacific bid to acquire Kansas City Southern. Its rival CN has done the same, but at a 21% better valuation. Uh, Anthony, you care or not nah about this? Nah, I think it was Joanna that, that mentioned it. And I don't, I don't care about this too much at all. I'm sure 
Mike Bottomdistle can bring some really good facts of why it's important. And I'm sure they're all going to be valid. But nah, like I think when we're looking at rail, they operate kind of within their own vacuum. And so there's going to be potentially shifts and movements, but it's going to still remain within those few players. And so, eh. Yeah, I'm not huge on this one. I think it's just fun to have a bidding war, so I am kind of interested in that part just to see if, if, if uh, Canadian Pacific will come back with another better offer. I'm very interested to see that. But I don't care too much. I do think there is a little bit of a historical, like there, there will be some historical importance of this. I, just thinking about two Canadian companies fighting over an old American railroad so that they can have access to Mexico. So right. It's, just, it, you know, it's like you think about why is that connection so important these days, and I think part of it's with the new FMCSA deal, part of it's with uh, nearshoring some of this production, especially automotive production to Mexico. So it is a big deal, um, but I'm glad that you are coming with the with the candid answers today that you don't, do not care. <laughs> of so course. let's go with it. Uh, let's go with number two. This one is Target. So Target is testing out its proprietary fleet of gig economy couriers. They It's shipped. This is a company that they acquired in 2007 or in 2017, rather. They are testing out in Minneapolis to not only allow these flex these kind of gig economy couriers to deliver bagged goods and orders from Target stores, but now they are also going to have them deliver boxed e-commerce orders from a sortation center there in Minneapolis. You care or not? I care. I mean, this is a smoking hot industry. It has been for some time and it's going to continue to be. And it only makes sense that these large companies have their own resources and their own ecosystem. So I care. I think it's going to be great. It's going to be something that's going to help streamline and when these giants fight, the consumer wins. That is very true. I, th- I have a lot of thoughts on this one because if, if there's anybody to test this out, it's going to be Target because they are the only ones that have figured out how to bring the margins of Bopis and curbside pickup in line with in-store shopping. I think they say that, uh, I mean, with, it's within a couple percentage points. And Target has said that when they ship from store, or not when they ship from store, but when they do Bopis, it's 90% cheaper for them than if they shipped it from a fulfillment center. And if they ship it from store, like from a ship delivery driver or from UPS coming to pick it up at store, it is 40% cheaper than sending it from a fulfillment center. But here you have them sending it from a fulfillment center or from a distro center to a store, then from a store to a sortation center, and then from a sortation center to home. So uh, there's, a, uh, there's a professor at a, at a university that I'm forgetting right now, but his name's Gene Destroyer, and uh, he posts on Retail Wire all the time, and he posted that he thought shipping from store was kind of this Rube Goldberg machine that was just overly complicated way to do things, and (laughs) this is taking that to a whole nother level, but if there's anybody that can do it, I think it's Target, and I'm excited for them to try it because they're just trying to get products to customers faster, and and shipping is the number one cost for them. Their uh, CEO, John John Mulligan, rather, came out and said shipping is the big number for us, and they're just trying to find ways to offset or, or crowd out some of the their reliance on um, USPS and U- UPS and FedEx. And they're going to try to do it through their own uh, proprietary uh, offering of drivers, which Amazon already does with Amazon Flex and Walmart already does with Spark. So this definitely seems like it's the way of the future. Definitely the way of the future. And like I said, it makes sense with such a big player. And interested to see, I mean, Target's been able to kind of keep up in a sense with Walmart and Amazon as those big two main players going back and forth. But Always love to see, you know, a third party enter this or, or a third individual enter this just to kind of keep that pressure up. Yeah, absolutely. I think Target's doing an amazing job. And, and I love it because they set out in 2013, they said that we're going to focus on our stores. The, the answer to e-commerce for us, the answer to beating Amazon or competing against Amazon for us is the one advantage we have over them. It's our, you know, huge uh, store network where they're, you know, within a few miles of the vast majority of Americans and they're leveraging them and they're doing a great job of it. 
All right, you ready to get into some econ? Let's do it. All right, man. So this is, of course, Econ Day to Day with Mr. Anthony Smith, our lead economist, your partner in crime, who is your host on Freightonomics and uh, and, and the Sultan of Sonar, of course. His name is Zach Strickland. He wrote in his last week's article where he does his uh, chart of the week for Sonar, he wrote that this could be the hottest summer ever for freight. So we're going to debate it. We're going to talk about some consumer data. We're going to talk about some, um, some labor data, some wage data, and then also get into some housing data and the built building and, and some of the more industrial and heavy data. But Let's start uh, high level with consumer. We had an amazing March retail sales. I'll let you give the highlights and then we'll, we'll pick through it a little bit. Definitely. I mean, as you said, we had retail sales come out and I don't think it's too much of a surprise to anyone. Certainly not to you. For sure, you covered this market very closely. We had retail sales increase 9.8% on a month to month basis, but consumers were in between stimmy checks. And so it makes sense that when you see these stimulus checks hit, they didn't have them in February, hold, held off on some spending, those stimulus checks hit, now spending's through the roof and sky high. And so it makes a lot of sense. But I think one of the things that we were chatting about earlier is that momentum starting to kind of decline a little bit, right? Yeah, it's, um, that's also kind of unsurprising. I, there's, there's multiple things to me. So I, I, we, we watch this Bank of America consumer spending report every week. And if you haven't seen this, it's, I think, the best uh, real-time consumer spending report you can get. It comes out every Thursday. They call it uh, Bo- BOFA on USA Special. Check it out uh, on, on Merrill Edge. You can make a free account. But they have said that we're kind of seeing the stimulus boost fade a little bit. The marginal propensity to consume for this stimulus, the third one has been the lowest of the, of the previous three, which was surprising to me given the huge burst in spending that we saw there at the beginning of March. Um, but it is the stimulus boost is fading. And what, what they're seeing is you're seeing a, a big boost in the reopening economy. So restaurant spending is now up in the mid to single, um, single digits or even low double digits in some areas. Um, entertainment spending is really picking up where regions are dropping or, or, or you know, stopping their restrictions on social distancing. We're also seeing airline spending pick back up. We're still down considerably, down I think 30% over or under 2019, but airline passengers are picking up. Some of the airlines are saying that they're bookings are picking up. So we're seeing people revert back to services. But the, the, the real question is, like, can, is the savings rate high enough? Is the war chest of Americans high enough that they can revert back to services without it having this huge detriment to good spending in the back half of the year? Definitely. And I think that's going to be the big thing, right? You just mentioned it. Are, is the saving rates high enough? Do they have enough? And do they have that want enough to spend? And what we've seen throughout the latter half of the year from 2020 that velocity of money, and we'll probably chat about this a little bit later on, but the velocity of money really kind of came down. And that's one of the things that kept inflation levels relatively low. We also probably touch on that a little bit here later. But when we look at that, they have the funds there. It's going to come down a lot to consumer confidence and sentiment around them actually feeling confident with their jobs and their income as streams and things like that. So there might be a few people that get jaded, like, oh man, I was not ready for this pandemic. I was in a horrific um, financial situation. This pandemic hit, I wasn't prepped. They're gonna be maybe a smaller percentage of individuals that are gonna have that more or less likely to spend. Um, But I think as we move forward, there's definitely gonna be an increased spending. As you mentioned, I think you had a great call earlier this year about um, more spending going towards services. And I think that's gonna be one of the things that we're gonna see especially, as you said, more states opening up, reducing restrictions, aggressive vaccine efforts. It's all coming together. 
Yeah, let's talk about sentiment for a moment because the University of Michigan sentiment, I think they brought it out last week, uh, the, the preliminary April survey. So this, this I think it, the, the cutoff was uh, uh, early, very early April. So you're, you're really getting a, a pretty good real-time um, condition here. And the, the good thing is that the current conditions are at a pandemic high. So these, this, I, I should back up, this index is broken into a current conditions and also a future um, conditions, uh, the next six months looking out, the expectations. And the current conditions is up to a pandemic high, but the expectations didn't improve last month to this month. Does that give you any fear? Oh, it doesn't give me any fear. Um, I think this is going to be one of those things where we're probably going to see it at its highest, or not the highest level, but it's going to be okay. We're seeing uh, restrictions uh, kind of come down. So I think that's going to be kind of in accordance to how far do we really see with uh, restrictions kind of coming off. How aggressive are these vaccine efforts? Are they really kind of having these implications where restaurants in the area are going to be opening up? So I think it's going to be a scattered approach. I think if we were to break this down into region by region, I think it would be much more skewed. But I think as a country overall, we look at these large areas, California, in a much different place than Texas, in a much different place than New York, which is in a much different place than Florida. So I think it's going to be regional by regional. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. I was in Florida last weekend and consumer sentiment was high. Yeah. Okay, people, were, <laughs> people were out spending money. They were having a good time. You would have thought nothing was going on. Um, and also one more thing, a, a good a good point on this to, to not be, uh, you know, kind of an opposite, a catalyst that I'm seeing is in the conference board consumer confidence survey. They're, they're always a little bit more optimistic than the University of Michigan, but directionally very similar results. And they also showed improving expectations on big ticket items, on cars, on homes. Uh, and that has a part to do with interest rates right now uh, being still really low, even though they're coming up. Uh, and we'll, we'll get into that here in a moment. But right. So, you know, the savings rate is very high. Um, I'll, I'll mention this thing that we're talking here about whether or not consumers can continue to spend on goods at this type of clip, even when all the services that we want are available to us, when football games are available to us in the fall and concerts and everything. I'll say at least for the trucking industry, I don't think that the brunt of the shift will be felt as much as in other industries. You know, for example, um, we may revert back to services, but there's still so much inventory replenishment to do on the on the consumer goods side that I really don't think that the shift will be felt. It will be very gradual moving off. And then, but I, but on the other side of that, you also have produce season, and this is something that we're already seeing the shift the the shift back to services hurting freight volumes, I think, because produce has been, and reefer volumes in general, have been a big catalyst of the surges we've seen in volumes over the past year. As when the first surge that we saw in March, a lot of that was reefer volume as uh, consumers stocked up on on grocery and on household goods. Um, but now produce season is apparently here. Like Everybody keeps talking about produce season is here and, and, pro and uh, reefer volumes continue to slide off of that high that they had after the winter storm. So I think we're already seeing the impact of some consumer spending um, reverting back to services, but it's it's just not making that big of an impact on overall freight volumes. And I think there's so much inventory restocking to do that even if the reversion happens, it won't be that brunt. That's a huge, that's a huge deal. And I think you're exactly right on that point because we're looking at ports, right? LAX or just throughout the, the, the entire West Coast, the ports are backed up. Mm -hmm. There's so much more stuff to come in. And consumers are still, I mean, we hear stories, anecdotal stories of people still waiting on furniture to come in that they may have ordered months ago or those, um, I think we heard earlier on, maybe latter, latter half of last year, those exercise equipment yeah. that just were stuck in transit. And so, like I said, there's a lot of stuff that's still waiting. So that's gonna really take some time to feed in throughout the industry. And, and that moment where we have that shift to, to services, I don't think it's gonna be all that noticeable, really. 
Yeah, there's such a there's a transition, uh, a transitional inventory right now. This is the last point I'll make before we go on to labor and wages. But Nike, for example, in there at the end of 2020, their um, <laughs> this is crazy. Their inventory at DCs was down. 20% year over year, but their inventory on hand was up 31% year over year. So they had so much inventory stuck on the seas, stuck at the ports, just waiting to get into their distribution center. So I think that there are many companies just like that. So I think that there are a lot of freight volumes that are going to continue to flow, even if consumer spending does kind of revert back to services. But let's talk about labor, because this is another important point that we still have millions of jobs in the services industry that are coming back online slowly but surely. Uh, and this is an amazing point for the overall economy. Great for goods demand, great for overall demand because uh, I, I read in, or I heard actually in a, in a Morgan Stanley uh, Thoughts on the Market uh, podcast the other day that 84% of, and this blew my mind because I hadn't thought about it in this way, but it was 84% of all, uh, of all, oh, excuse me, I'll come back to that point. But uh, in any point, it's like our service industry, two thirds of our economy is consumer spending and two thirds of that is on services. So the services make up a huge part of our economy. We need those jobs to come back and we really need those jobs to come back because we're going to have those unemployment insurances um, expiring in September. So we need to get those jobs up, get wages boosted to have this kind of smooth transition off of those insurance benefits. That's a big thing. And it was one of the things that we, we chatted about, I think, Early on, on the onset of the pandemic, we were talking about what the incentive is, what those uh, insurance benefits. I think early on, it was very aggressive um, to say, okay, hey, we're going to replace some of your uh, income. And even more so, it was like a lot of people got a raise essentially yeah. to stay at home. And so it was an incentive, understandably so, because it's like, we don't want you to be down and out here. Just stay home, stay comfortable, pay what you have to pay, relax don't touch anyone, don't go outside, <laughs> right. stay away from everyone. And so it's understandable where that incentive was. Now, some of those people are still maybe a little bit incentivized. And so mm -hmm. it's going to be telling to see when those come back, what's going to happen to those jobless claims. Are people continuing to apply for those because, hey, I, it's a break even. I'm going to make the same amount if I go back to work or not. So I'm showing these benefits a little bit longer. So it's going to be a delicate balance as we navigate that. And I know you're not a policy expert, but could but do you foresee them extending these past September or do you, do you even have an opinion on it? Yeah, I think for sure if they do extend it past September, I think it would have to be done at a de decreased clip. So not as an aggressive. Just gradually. Off. Gradually, for sure. I think right. that would make sense. All right, well, let's talk about some of those uh, unemployment, or unemployment uh, claims because the, the unemployment rate edge down to 6% in March. This is still 2.5% higher than pre-COVID, but we got to remember how low uh, unemployment rate was pre-COVID, how hot the economy was. I think that, you know, that, that must be kept in mind when we're thinking back and doing these comparisons. That's right. I mean, it was an extremely tight market, labor market, uh, pre-pandemic. And I've been a huge skeptical uh, person, as you know, with a lot of these employment numbers Ooh. earlier. Earlier on in the pandemic, I know, hard to believe, but when we were looking at the initial jobless claims, we saw that they were just kind of going up, down, up, down, but really kind of hovering around that 800 to 700,000 uh, applicants upon a weekly basis, week after week after week. And it was weird because some places like California had to shut down altogether to kind of go through fraud claims, a lot of backlogs because there people industries or regions weren't set up to process this many claims that came through. So it kind of just told me like, we might get the full story a little bit later on. Um, it might just be a little bit worse than we anticipated. And so I don't really get too caught up in the numbers. And so right now I'm just looking across the board at these different outlets and looking at more so the direction. So looking at 
those initial jobless claims. They came down to a pandemic low, most recent report. We see job openings increase. We see uh, the ADP National Employment Report showing an increase of 517,000 um, payrolls. We see the ISM PMI employment component showing that employment has increased. And so looking across the board, I don't get too caught up in the specific numbers, but are things moving in the right direction? And it looks like they are, and it looks sustainable. And on, uh, you know, if, if that if that's if set the case and things are sustainable, what are we seeing on the wage side of things? Because, you know, this is a big a portion of inflation. Um, you can't really have much wage inflation on goods if you don't have wage inflation, or if you can have much inflation on goods if you don't have much wage inflation. I know that we're uh, kind of just catching up to wages and salaries, getting back to a pre-COVID level. It's been a very long trek back to that, I guess, the pre-2019 circa arc that we're getting back to. Um, but, but, you know, there's, I guess, four major... Uh, there's been four major uh, segments of wages over the past year, and that's been, of course, wages and salaries, which are just getting back to uh, pre-COVID levels. You've got the economic stimulus payments, which I don't expect us getting any more of them. Um, you, you may have a different opinion, but unemployment insurance supplements, again, that's going to be maybe expiring in September or at least tapering off thereafter. And then tax refunds have been extremely delayed this year. Um, <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine working in that department uh, this year. But my, my point is that wages, I think we're going to see the savings rate peak when that March data comes in. I think it comes in next week. But wages, I don't think we're going to see huge wage growth over this year. But you tell me why I'm wrong. I mean, I want to disagree with you just to disagree with you. But I mean, we, I don't think we'll see a large uh, increase because we're going to see those repeals and some of those stimulus packages. Right. It'll be weird. It'll be, it'll be strange if we saw another stimulus package increased. And Probably fiscally irresponsible, but hey, probably I'm not Jerome Powell. I can call up Jerry see what he has to say. We're close, first name basis. He doesn't know me, but <laughs> I think it, it, it could potentially be very uh, detrimental if we did see another aggressive stimulus, anything like we just saw, um, just as as we're moving throughout the economy. It's going to have to be, I think, the, the theme, a smooth transition as we move into uh, the next phase of this whole recovery. Of course, I'm an economist. I'm not a health expert, so... Maybe we get Fauci on here to tell us if there's going to be another spike. I don't know. But um, when we're looking at how the economy is moving, definitely looks like uh, wages are, and salaries, as you said, kind of coming back. Not quite there yet. But I don't really see another stimulus package coming out. So we'll get into headwinds at the very end because I hadn't really thought about uh, another wave. I think I can't even count what wave this would be. It right. would be like the fifth or sixth. But that's certainly uh, a, a fear, and it could be, especially if one of these um, these new variants kind of really take over and, and, and cause a bigger problem than they're even call, causing now. But inflation is certainly another one of those headwinds, but we'll touch on those. I wanted to uh, make a point from this Morgan Stanley um, podcast that I heard the other day. It's, of course, it's called Thoughts on the Market. It is incredible. They're very short, about eight or 10 minutes, but uh, they had a lead economist there from their team, and she said that this is their estimates, and this is basically to supplement the argument of whether uh, consumers have enough money to keep this good trains going, and, and can it go longer into 2022 and beyond? And they estimate that $1.5 trillion was accumulated in excess savings by Americans in 2020. And they expect another $700 billion uh, in the first half of 2021. So $2.2 trillion in total. And of course, not all of that will be spent. And not all of that is, is really um, income that could be spent today. A lot of that's been put in savings or put elsewhere. But they do place a 25% marginal propensity to consume that those that 2.2 trillion over the next two years. So that is a lot of money and it goes a long way. And if it's spent on any goods at all, you're going to have a, a lot more freight volume continuing. And I, I'm, I'm just, I, the more I think about this, I wasn't confident in this back in maybe January before the, the latest round of stimulus and f before the vaccine rollout has really progressed. I, I really did think that 
the good spending would decline substantially and revert back to services. But I feel like consumers are just in a place right now where they can continue to spend on goods and um, the, the ones that are lucky enough do revert back to services and go on vacations because in that same podcast, the, they talked about how Americans want to take double the vacations in their surveys that they've done, want to take double the vacations that they took pre-COVID and the ones that don't want to take double, they want to spend double. So there's a lot of people that are just itching to get out. Yeah. And, and I mean, it all sounds nice. I mean, I want to take four vacations and I say that every single year. I say every single year, I want to go to Japan and I never do. I want to go to South America, do like a little expedition. So I never do. We work too hard. Man. We work too hard. And America works too hard. That's true. Probably not according to, you know, in relation to, to Japan. But yeah. we, we definitely are addicted to work. And so perhaps we do see a lot more travel. I'm sure there's going to be a, a, a substantial increase for sure. Um, but I'm going to take this with a grain of salt because I think we're all optimistic in going into this new or I'm not going to say new normal, just kind of returning to, you know, being able to breathe without a mask on indoors and things like that. So I think there's some excitement there. Expectations are, yeah, I feel a little bit. Pump the brakes just a tad. I'm not telling you to, to, to not be excited because we all are very excited. But all right, let's talk about housing for a moment because we've got about five minutes here. And that is your background, uh, you know, prior to coming to Freight Waves. So just talk with me some of the headline data and, and what the momentum's looking like. I know directionally things are good, but there's definitely some headwinds ahead with, labor, with uh, commodity costs, maybe some labor pressures moving forward. What are you seeing? Yeah, and, and housing starts definitely an area that I had high expectations for, and they are um, performing accordingly. We saw that in the latest report that there was a 19.4 increase for March. It's up 37% year over year. That's huge. And so when we're looking at that, it's increasing on all parts of these major regional breakouts except for West Coast. And so that's been an area early on that we we're talking about, hey, this is going to suffer because people are leaving California. Yeah, that's that's not a new trend, just <laughs> accelerated. A, it's certainly. just accelerated and it's been nuts. And so we can see that being a continuous thing, especially as we look at the Midwest, they had a booming month um, throughout the month of March. And so this is gonna be a thing, but as you mentioned, there are some headwinds, especially when we're looking at new homes with uh, building product materials, lumber prices being a huge thing. Yeah, if, if anybody's been looking at lumber prices, by the way, it's actually unbelievable. If you thought yeah. the Bitcoin, or the, actually Dogecoin is now, uh, it's approaching the craziness level of lumber, but go check out a lumber price chart. Uh, I should have brought one for you, but it is, it's unbelievable. Also, an official pronouncing on that? I think it's Dogecoin. I've always okay. been told Dogecoin. I, okay. I, I, I could be wrong, but that's what I've always I'm going with it, Dogecoin. Yeah, so, so, know, people go with all kinds of things. But it is officially, they're trying to, they're, or not officially, unofficially, it is Dogecoin Day that people have been trying to push that today. I don't know if it's working for the price, but I do wish Dooner and all of his Dogecoin <laughs> Legion best of luck on that. There's but, a day for everything. But oh, yeah, yeah, other than that, existing homes, uh, extremely tight inventory, and that's propping up pricing as well. But we also have those eviction mandatoriums that might play a little bit of a wild card uh, as we get closer and closer to June. Yeah, so it's June, the cutoff for those. Yeah, that's that's something that I've been, um, I will be eyeballing. Certainly, it's going to be scary, uh, I think, on some sorts, but but also very interesting to watch. But what about home builders? Uh, they've been, sentiment has been very high through the back half of last year. What are they seeing? Are they are they kind of showing um, signs that, that they think might, things might be winding down, or what are they saying? So I think the latest NAHB report showed that it did increase, um, and so we're seeing some increasing on the home builder sentiment. And I also look at Fannie Mae that puts out the home purchasing sentiment index. 
if you're cool, you might want to call it the hipsy, but they put it out and we're seeing that more and more people are thinking that this is a good time to sell. No surprise, prices are yeah. crazy high. So people are going to want to sell, but they're all also seeing that that good time to buy um, component is increasing as well. Not at pre-pandemic levels, but some upward movement. Yeah, that was my that was going to be my question is because it's just seeming unbelievable. Like, I, I know Chattanooga is one of the hottest markets in the country, and I'm probably looking at an outlier market here. But all of my anecdotally, the people that I've met that have bought houses recently, they're all paying a substantial percentage over what it was worth just a year ago. And all the houses that I'm looking at, I'm trying to buy a house are the same story. You know, yeah. it's up for 205 when it was up for 160 last year. So it it's just seemingly like this is this has got to end sometime. And do you and, and like do you foresee it ending badly? That that's kind of my. I don't, I don't think it's going to end horrifically okay. just because I think we have a solid foundation. This has been a thing that's been kind of building up for some time. I think we do see that I, the, the pricing increasing. I think that momentum is going to ease as we move forward. So I think some of these prices are up. They're going to stay high. But I think that increase of price is going to kind of start to the, the momentum is going to ease a little bit. You don't, you don't see no abrupt ending, I guess. I guess it's not a bad ending. That was my question. It's yeah. like, and, and also... Um, I don't know if you have any if you have any insight into this, but it it, it would seem to me that there's got to be a lot of people that are hurting by hurting on their mortgage right now and that have been given um, whatever term you want absence to to not pay their stuff. Do you think that that is going to play an impact? Do you see a lot of foreclosures coming up in the next year? That could be a huge impact, and that's going to be the job of Jerry and his friends <laughs> to kind of make sure that we don't just pull the plug completely because that would be messed up if we just pull the club plug completely. And so as we look at that, that's going to have to be another one of those easing and trickling into um, how we really kind of go through the housing situation. All right. So we do have to wrap this up, unfortunately. But the two headwinds I think we were going to talk about is inflation. I think that is a worry of everybody. We don't have enough time to get into it today. So we'll have Anthony back on soon to talk inflation. Um, but that has been episode 66 of Great Quarter, guys. You can find all of our shows, everything that Freight Waves does live on one feed at FreightCast, wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also find this show, Great Quarter, guys, if you search it uh, on its own on the same places where you can catch us live as you are right now, Wednesdays at, or Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern on Freight Waves LinkedIn, Freight Waves Facebook, and Freight Waves TV. We've got an amazing virtual event coming up on Thursday, Earth Day, uh, April 22nd. I can't speak today, but it's the Net Zero Carbon Summit. We're going to be talking all about electric trucks. We're going to talk about all of the new technology that are trying to electrify our industry and make it more sustainable. So join us then. We'll be live uh, early, early Thursday morning. See you then.